Hey, this is Brian Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And this is our Christmas episode of No Sleep Till Sudbury, live from the home of Mr. Rick Emmett. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for hosting again. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Jingle bells, jingle bells. It's great to be here. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. uh, so good to have you back on the show. Uh, I know that Christmas music is something that's very near and dear to your heart. And you supplied me with a lot of great information in terms of uh, the songs, first of all, but also the stories behind them and, uh, you know, how you feel about them. We have a lot to talk about today. So this might be a two-part. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I intend to make it two parts on you. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's going to drag out like an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. So we're going to talk about your strategy in assembling your Christmas songs. Yes. We are going to talk about the true meaning of Christmas. We are also going to talk about who dictates the music that's played in the Emmett household. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I ain't the boss. <laughs> okay. So let's start with um, the strategy. How do you put these playlists together for Christmas? Uh, well, for me, uh, you know, I mean, I like a mix of the very traditional, and I know you're a bit of a traditionalist, so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there'll be stuff on the list that's right up your alley. And then I, the, because I'm a musician, there's things that come my way that I like to sort of sneak in there. And they have become part of my family's playlists too yeah. over the years. Uh, but, you know, they take them in sort of different doses and measures in their playlists than I might have in mine. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not really a, a very sort of um, religious kind of guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would say I'm probably agnostic almost all the way to atheist, you yeah. know. Yeah. So – I, I do appreciate that because it was a big part of my youth. I, I sang in church choirs and school choirs and, and, you know, Christmas was always about, you know, Jesus and, and that sort of thing, you know. Same. I mean, I, I have a, a really strong memory of my life and I think it was maybe in about grade seven or eight. Okay. That walking over to Runnymede United Church from where I lived. Mm. So that was, I lived the other side of Keel in yep. Toronto. So, you know, you're, it was a, you're walking a good concession over a couple of miles and uh, getting to, uh, the church for a midnight Mid choir sing thing, which they called a candlelight something or other and sitting in the balcony and the choir, you know, walking down the aisle with the candles all going and getting to the front. And then yeah. this night of just, it was like magic. It yeah. was just this unbelievably cool goose bump inducing kind of thing. Right. Yes. So. But, you know, shortly after that, it was kind of like, yeah, sorry, I don't really buy into this whole, you know, hereafter kind of thing. Like, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm, you know, I'm going to have to walk away from that. But it's a big part of what, you know, Christmas music kind of is based on is that mm -hmm. spirituality, that kind of very deep kind of, you know, emotional thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Funny. Uh, I followed the same path. You know, when I was a kid, I was raised Roman Catholic. And so we went to midnight mass Yeah, and that was a huge event. Yes. But as I got older, I kind of gravitated away from it because yeah. I myself am agnostic to the point of being atheist yeah. uh, as well. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So that, you know, my playlist will have some of, you know, Jesus and the baby and the, there, there's a part of that. And this sort of brings us to the, the true heart of Christmas. Like what is the spirit of Christmas to yes. me? And the spirit of it is, is, Virtual, like it brings you to things like hope and faith and love, like the birth of a baby, you know, that's sort of a child of God. This is common to all religions, you know, this kind of myth of, right. of God becomes man. Yeah. And, and, um, because it's the birth of hope and it's also the hope, you know, Jesus, is this all there is? You know, is that Peggy Lee? <laughs> like, no, you know, I hope it ain't, you yeah. know. The faith comes out of that. and But then there's this thing about love. Like when a baby gets born, it's like, and I'm saying this as a guy that's just recently a grandfather for the third time. And, we, you know, there's nothing like holding that baby in your arms. It's just mm -hmm. an unbelievable feeling of, yeah, hope renewed and all that stuff. Uh, love, you know. So a baby's helpless, completely helpless. And it requires, you know, so... That's a kind of a cool thing about Christmas is that we're renewing our faith in the fact that we're all pretty helpless at yeah. points in our lives and we need help. Yes. Where's it going to come from? And Christmas music kind of provides a little bit of a soundtrack for, okay, I'm going to renew my faith here, even if you're not necessarily religious. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I liked what you said uh, about World War II. 
and how oh, yeah. that factors in. Yeah, well, when, once we get into the playlist, there's going to be that stuff will just become really self-evident. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, f- first of all, uh, and, you know, not to get too crazy up front here, but the, historically speaking, yeah. if you think about American music, and that's essentially what drives the world's music industry. Mm-hmm. Tin Pan Alley was this thing that started to become, oh, publishing, selling of sheet music, oh, the selling of recordings, you know, um, mechanical royalties for writers. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing about it is, if you've studied enough of it and you know it, there, there was an awful lot of Jewish influence in that. But Christmas music was big. Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas. Right. right? It's like, <laughs> so there, there was this very heavy thing of, you know, Christmas was now becoming commercialized by, you know, publishers and, and the music industry. Yeah. Uh, and so these songs were starting to come along that, you know, uh, it was making the transition. Now, so you you trace that sort of coming out of, of you know, ragtime and Dixieland and all that. And then the depression comes along and wow, like culture just takes a hammering, yeah. right? Yeah. So again, this, this come back to this thing of faith and hope. You know, now, of course, at the same time, you've got radio huge, you know, and growing all the time through out of the in the, in the 30s. And that's starting to spark the, the selling of recordings. You know, people are buying 78s. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I don't know how many of your listeners would know this, you know, uh, arcane little detail. But why is an album called an album? It's because all those heavy acetates were put into cardboard sleeves in books hmm. that went up on the bookcases where families kept their photo albums. Really? And so then there became record albums right beside them. Uh-huh. And that's and they were called albums. See, and then eventually we started to think about 33 and a third right. as an album. Yeah. But, you know, we called them that. But uh-huh. it, it originally came from it just this, you know, large book-sized, lar- encyclopedia-sized thing that held 78s. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. See, I learned something. See, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, so that, you know, depression, people are hurting and then Mm -hmm. they go, okay, well, I I could use some music to, you know, soften my day, you know, soften my landing here or give me a sense of hope, you know. So along come these songs, you know, like Wonderland is a song, 1934. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, the the perfect ending of a perfect day, sleigh ride kind of stuff, you know, walking in winter. You, You could afford to go and take a walk. Yeah. That wasn't didn't cost any money to have to do that. Yeah. So the song was kind of like this universality of you know Make do a, with a positive that. kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, I'd never looked at the song that way. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, in your Winter Wonderland, so you prefer the Bing Crosby original? Right? Well, that was the original recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah Winter Wonderland uh, thirty four. It was written by Felix Bernard and and a guy named uh, Dick Smith was yeah. the lyricist. And um, he was an ad writer. Yeah. So the commercialism of, of, you know, the thing I love about this song yeah, the most, I think, <laughs> there's lots of things I like about it, but I love the bridge. When I used to teach songwriting at the college, I used to say, bridges should be like a vacation from a song. Mm. Like you, you have a song, you got verses and choruses, you know, you've, you've established your template. Yeah. But then when the bridge comes... Like, make it be like a breath of fresh air. So yeah. I'm just going to pick up my guitar here so that will illustrate something here really quickly. And I'm going to do this. This is I'm, My guitar might be tuned down a half step. I don't know. As I get older, I need it a little <laughs> lower you know, for singing. But you, so you've got your... Uh, and then you get... So we've established the key of D, and you've got these things. So I'm going to talk about these later too. Two fives, very jazzy kind of thing that was, was going to say, entering yeah. into the yeah. So you can do it with more Dixieland ragtimey kind of chords, just okay. dominant sevens. Okay. You could do that, but I major sevens and stuff. Anyways, the bridge comes and. It modulates right away a major third. So we're in this key, yeah. and then the bridge comes. That's sure. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And there's those two fives. And then you get. Now you get a minor third modulation. Yeah. Why? What a lift. 
Now we got to try and get back to the original key. You can do the job when you're in town later on back to D. by the fire. <laughs> yeah. So it has this lovely little loop, like talk about a vacation. Yeah. We're going to go a major third, a minor third to get us back to the five chord to bring us back to the... Yeah, pretty cool, eh? A lot of people overlook the quality of songwriting involved there. It, totally. Right. And and the melody is incredible. Yeah. You know, you get this... So when you're an arranger or an orchestrator, and there was a lot of that going on at that time, because radio, well, we're going we're gonna to have the, you know, some somebody, somebody orchestra from the top of the hotel, you know, uh, at seven o'clock on a Wednesday night. Yeah. And that's going to be the show. And so the, or well, orchestra, we're going to hire a bunch of New York guys. We're going to get a, an arranger. And so the arrangers are going, well, let's, let's get something hip going on here. You know, and of course there was all that Duke Ellington thing, stuff that was going on. Yeah. It was becoming a very hip thing to have great arrangements. It's not a big stretch that the Christmas music became, well, it's, it's kind of a vehicle for pretty good arrangements. So writers would even say, well, when I write this, I'm going to write it so that it can have some pretty hip arranging. I'm not going to just make it simple. I want to make it so that it's got some 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 really cool stuff to it, you know. So, and then lyricists get a hold of this stuff. And sometimes the lyrics might have come first. Yeah. Uh, in, in some cases, I think, and we're going to tell a story later. Yeah. About chestnuts. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I might even just read the story because it's such a great story. I like that story, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an incredible thing. Anyways, but sometimes lyrics lead the way. Mm -hmm. So when I see, like, in the bridge, it's like, in the meadow, we can build a snowman. And we'll pretend that he is Parson Brown. This is storytelling again. But in the old days, in rural communities, a guy who was a parson, he wasn't even really necessarily a minister. He was, like, just a a, a guy that was like a, a justice of the PC kind of, but religious. Okay. But he would go around and he would go to farms and marry people. And they say, oh, yeah, he's coming. He'll, he'll be around here Tuesday on his horse. <laughs> and, he, and he was a parson. And the parson came and married you. So that lyric has got a historical kind of a really cool yeah. rural thing to it. You know, rural America. Yeah. He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no, man. But you can do the job when you're in town. Yeah. Which is this thing of, hey, the, the parson's going to come. And so your cousin can get married down the fourth line. And then you're. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a kind of a cool thing. Yeah, definitely. It Great is. lyric. Yeah. Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire yeah. to face unafraid the plans that we made walking in a winter wonderland. So I want you to think about the run of that, that lyrical idea. And you then think about the music of it mm -hmm. because it goes, later on we'll conspire as we sit by the fire. So the music's kind of building up. It's yeah. not resolving yet. To face unafraid all the plans that we made. We're coming down, we're coming down, but yeah. it still hasn't resolved. Walking in a winter wonderland. And we get resolution. Yes. So we just went for a little walk. We just went for a little stroll, musically speaking, through that verse. Yeah. It's fantastic. Like the prosody of it. It's just really, really hip. It really is. It is fantastic thinking about that when you really kind of give that some thought. Yeah. You know, the lyrics doing that, taking you up and down. And the and melody. Supported the by the melody. Like, like, like just walking lockstep. And the, the, the example I used to use in music classes was McCartney's Long and Winding Road, which is as good as prosody gets. Okay. So you, I want you to think about this for a second. I'm sure. going off topic here, but it's fine. I'm leading your, leading <laughs> your listeners astray. Sure. <laughs> We're going down a long and winding road here. Uh, if you think about that melody, it goes like, The long and winding road that leads to your door. And this is a kind of a chord that's, well, it hasn't resolved yet. Will always leave me here. And it still hasn't resolved. Will always leave me here. Lead me to your door. Resolution. And now we get resolution. So the melody walks you all the way through a verse. It's a long and winding road. Wow. Like it's, 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 it's very hip. You know, and it's old school. Yeah. It's very much like these winter wonderlandy kinds of things. But McCartney, it he's got that kind of brain, right? His dad yeah. was a guy that played trumpet and you know, big band kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So Wow. Yeah. yeah. All of this, you know, it, it just um I feel like people don't think about this stuff. 
Well, I, I certainly did not, and I'm one of those yeah, guys who really thinks. But I, you know, things. why do some people become musicians? Mm. You know, I've always said it's kind of like it's an avocation. There's this calling. It's like going you're called by the priesthood. Yeah. Like yeah. Oh, I can't help myself. I gotta I gotta get into this. You know, <laughs> and once you get you know deeper into the layers of it. And, you know, this brings me back to sort of the whole of the, the Tin Pan Alley, you know, Jewish guys sitting in a little room, you know, somewhere on 42nd Street. Yeah. You know, in the sweltering summer. July. Yeah. yeah. And they're writing, you know, Christmas songs or they're writing eventually, you know, rock and roll songs. Like Paul Simon started yeah. out as a Tin Pan Alley writer. Did he really? I didn't yeah. know that. Did you know that Paul Simon wrote Red Rubber Ball by The Circle? No. Do you remember that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's going to be all right. Yeah, the first is over now. I'm done when he's on his shining like a red rubber ball. Really? It was a big hit. Paul Simon wrote it. He was 18 or 19 years old or something. Oh, wow. He was writing in the Brill Building. Yeah. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Neil Diamond was probably down the hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carol King. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Paul Simon was a millionaire before Simon and Garfunkel became a huge hit in America. I didn't know that. He had an album out in England that yeah. had I'm a Rock, Sounds of Silence, had oh. his songs on it. By himself? Paul Simon, yeah. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. How did Garfunkel Paul Simon. Prison? Jewish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, <right? you> know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not picking on the faith. When I, when I started in the Toronto music scene, yeah. I was a teenager. I started jobbing in Jewish wedding and bar mitzvah bands, and yeah. I was heavily impressed with how serious they took the music business. Mm. Like the guy I worked for, Bill Burl, he was the music director at the Royal Alex Theater. Yeah. And, but he had this Jewish wedding and bar mitzvah thing that he just constantly was pitching and getting gigs for. And, and I worked all the time. Yeah. And I was like C-level. You know, I wasn't even one of his A guys. Wow. So, yep. Corporate Christmas parties. <laughs> it's all these so Jewish bizarre, cats right? playing violin and accordion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Are we going to listen to the song at some point? Or people just, you you don't cue it up or they're supposed to be, where are they finding this one? So on Spotify. So typically what people will do, because we don't have the licensing rights, is is, uh, people will listen to the show, but also listen to Spotify at the same time and cue the songs up or YouTube, whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the one we want you to listen to is is the, track it down, the Bing Crosby one from 34. Yeah. 1934. Yeah. 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 And it's It's got – Richard Himber was the uh, conductor, and it's got the orchestra, the Hotel Ritz-Carlton Orchestra, RCA. Like there was this marriage that existed at the time between NBC mm-hmm. and RCA Records. And if you think about it, the National Broadcasting Corporation, the recording yeah. <laughs> company of America, like yeah. – Or yeah. corporation or whatever it was. Like they were just – Married. And, and, you know, decades later, a guy named Rick Emmett got signed to RCA Records in the States. And you could still, when you went to visit the building, yeah. that vibe was still around. The oh, studio, really? Yeah. Oh, the studios and the, oh, yeah, yeah. Where was that, it? New York City? Oh, you know, like Midtown Manhattan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the giant buildings. I don't, I don't exactly remember where, you know, okay. Fifth Avenue or something. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But it had that vibe. You could go to Studio 4 on this floor, you know. It was yeah. probably right around where the, you know, uh, 30 Rock yeah. is NBC. So it was probably part and parcel of that. Yeah. You know, right s- around Rockefeller Plaza. I, just, I was just there. I was telling you. I was just there oh, yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah. And saw 30 Rock. Saw all those great buildings. Yeah. You know? And Rob Pruce. I was telling you I was hanging out with him. And yeah, he yeah. brought me to. Um, That's the Spoons keyboard guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he took me to uh, down around 72nd Street to a building where uh, Bill Haley recorded Rock Around the Clock in 1954. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. It's fantastic. It's just the history. Yeah, yeah. Now it's a condo, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So Vin, do we want to talk about Vince Gill at all? Yeah, because I, I really like that. You know, I've, maybe that's the one they should be listening to. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's do that one instead. The, the personnel involved in that, this like, here's the thing about Vince Gill. First of all, one of my favorite guys. Yeah. Like, unbelievably great singer, really, really great guitar player. Yeah. So, you know, in my world, that guy sort of reigns supreme. But he's a very humble guy. And he's very spiritual, very, very faith-based kind of dude. Yeah. Married Amy Grant, second yeah. marriage, I think, for him. Maybe for her, too. Mm. Um, 
And we're going to come to him at the end of this long journey because yeah. uh, that's one of my favorite Christmas songs of all, Breath of Heaven. But he, anyways, his Christmas album, he's got a couple. Yeah. But Winter Wonderland, I think it's on Breath of Heaven as well on that album. And uh, it's got Michael Lomardian as one of the producers. Okay. Uh, Tony Brown was the other producer. So two producers, Tony Brown and and uh, Michael Lomardian. But the the orchestra is a guy named Patrick Williams. Okay. And he's he's passed away now. But that guy, oh, like Grammys out his yin yang. And yeah. the other two guys, they they're also heavy duty. So Vince had made pretty good money, you know, country Nashville. Now he's going to do this kind of real mainstream kind of record. But he wants to hit America right in the guts mm. of that. You know, those songs from the 30s and 40s, he wants the right kind of guys to do the arrangements. And as I mentioned earlier, these songs were written with arranging in mind. Right. So the arrangement of that uh, Vince Gill Winter Wonderland thing is just, it's incredible. It's immaculate. Yeah. It's just so beautiful and so perfect. That whole album is great. Yeah. But if if you like recordings. Yes. You you can't help but like it because the production of it is just superb. Mm. The sound of the instruments, the charts that got written, the you know the takes that they've used—they're just so perfect. There's you could eat off them. You yeah, know? yeah. Christmas cookies. <laughs> <laughs> so now let me ask you a question: When you hear when you listen to these these songs, what do you listen to them through? What's your system? Uh, I have a fairly good stereo in my living room. Well, That's which is a, it's got a moon power amp and, and preamp. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty high-end stuff. Yep. And the CD player is also a moon player. Okay. So, you know, well, we're, we're doing endorsements here. <laughs> my playback speakers are English, and they're the ones that the BBC uses in their, their reference monitors in their studios in, in London. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the name, but they're just small ones. They're yeah. just, you know, they're like literally near-field reference monitors. Oh, wow. Um, so I don't have big speakers or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, in a way, I'm like those musicians that, you know, and this is a kind of a cliche. I mean, they don't have good stereos at all because mm -hmm. they don't really ever listen to music recreationally because they listen to it just for work. It's funny so, that you say that. Molly Johnson told me that. She was on the show a little while ago, and she said musicians don't listen to music in their spare time. Yeah. They want to break from it. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I do, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I was a teacher yeah. for a long time. So that forced me. And students would, you know, sort of be ass kicking, you know, like, hey, you know, have you heard this? <laughs> I'm going, no, I haven't heard Snarky Puppy. You know, what the hell Snarky Puppy? So you'd have to, you know, check it out. So, but of course, now we have the internet and we have YouTube and it just makes it so that you can sample and remain hip and yeah. keep moving along yeah. you know like you just hit and move so i have uh, as you can see here in my studio i have some reference monitors and, and yeah. you know i can listen to music i have another system here i got these old yamaha ns10ms which is i listen to say jazz fm or classical you know moses's yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. his station 96.3 i don't know. but you know when i'm doing workouts Okay. I'll just put on some classical radio and listen to that through these old NS10Ms, which to me are still, my ears are used to them. I like them. They're kind of bright. Yeah. They're kind of high-endy. But, okay. you know, and if you blow one of the little tweeters, you're in trouble because they, they don't make replacement ones anymore. You oh, have to don't. go down market to try and find somebody that'll, yeah, fit you one of those tweeters in there. But, wow. yeah. You know, they, it, this is not high-end, high-end crazy. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not an audiophile by any stretch, but, okay. you know. I used to have a pair of Paradigm Phantoms that I loved. Oh, yeah. I, th I think guys use those as reference monitors in mastering facilities. Do they really? Yeah, yeah. I think those, yeah. Yeah. Those, do they sit on little spikes? Those yes, ones? they do. Yeah. yeah, little triangles. Ish. Yeah. Ish. All yeah. right, then. <laughs> You're getting into audiophile. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so we covered Vince Gill. So do you want to move on to uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas by Ben Crosby? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. So 1943. Yes. And it was a top 10 hit. So the the writer was Kim Gannon and the composer was a guy named Walter Kent. Mm -hmm. And it was written literally because soldiers are overseas here now. You know, Pearl Harbor's already happened. Americans are a long, long way away from home. Yeah. And they're getting killed and you know there's there's a, there's a, a heaviness that exists in the culture um wives that are waiting for husbands to come home and and parents that are waiting for their sons you know 
So the radio starts to go, okay, you know, we've got to meet people right where they're living emotionally, sort of. So the song was written with that in mind. It's it's such a short, tiny little lyric. The the full lyric literally goes, I'll be home for Christmas. And it was originally, you can plan on me. Mm. So it's like, hey, mom and dad, making plans, I'm coming. You yeah. know? Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. So we didn't have like big piles of things right. under yet, yeah. but that came later. Presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. So we're not being religious here, but we're kind of being spiritual. Like, you know, like the lighting of a candle, the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas. If only in my dreams. So yeah. the conditional comes right at the end. It's the little, ooh, it's like the stiletto goes into your heart and gives the little twist. Yes. You know? Yeah. That's it. That's the lyric. It's literally eight phrases long. Yeah. That's it. And they repeat it, you know? And then the orchestra goes off on a tangent and then we come back and we'll, you know, I'll be home for Christmas. If only in my dreams. Like, yeah. that's the capper. Simple, simple. So, songs used to be, Minute forty nine, two thirty tops. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. I think a yeah. long song was was three, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the Beatles were kind of in that vein. They were servicing that same. George Martin said, "No, no, let's keep it nice and tight and clean and tidy." And yeah, yeah. It was only much later, as AM radio sort of turned into FM radio, that album cuts and length and started to happen. Dylan was the guy that started it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like a Rolling Stone was the first time that yeah. somebody sort of thumbed their nose at the idea of, no, no, I don't care if it's three and a half. I don't care if it's four and a half. I don't care if it's five. I don't care if it's six and a half. I'm yeah. going to put it out anyways. Yeah. And then went, okay, well, he's Bob Dylan, I guess. Yeah. We better try it. And it became huge. And it was like, okay. I heard a story about that. The, well, Alan Cross told me that, I think, about uh, John Lennon. George Martin said, you know, radio stations never play this. It's too long. And he said, yeah, they will, if it's us. Yes. And yeah. they did. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, that, but they'd paid their dues in order to establish themselves. Of course, yeah. So that they could have that kind of conceit, yeah. you know, that kind oh, of yeah. arrogance. Yeah. And certainly Lennon would be the kind of guy that would have it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, um, and I mean, you know, I like that. I like when musicians have a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, I always have. But um, there's also, you know, something to be said for... If you pay the piper, you get to call the tune and record companies and, you know, radio programmers and stuff. They have their things that they're trying to hit housewives right in the guts or they're trying to, you know, and Christmas music is trying to provide a function. It's it's utilitarian. It is, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we have to capture the season. Yeah. True. Anyway, so we went off on a tangent there, but I'll be home for Christmas. It was it was a big song, but it, I think the 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 next one is the one that kind of really nailed it. Okay. So the next one on my list is uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Yes. Which was Judy Garland singing it in, in the movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, 1944. Right. Uh, we've had D-Day now, and uh, there's more death. There's more. So the idea of, well, we need escapism. So Meet Me in St. Louis, it was a period movie. But the song was definitely this thing about tugging at the heartstrings. Yeah. Uh, a Merry Little Christmas is this thing that, the soldiers need this. And she went and sang it at a canteen for the soldiers. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place. Every yeah. soldier was crying like a baby. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Because the, 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 the transition has occurred in American culture, the transition from Christmas as a, you know, the birth of Jesus and all of that to now a very commercial kind of, you know, courier and Ives catalogs and, and, um, Oh, Macy's is, you know, all the windows and we got Santa Clauses to you know, kids to sit on their laps. Like yeah. this whole thing of presents and stuff is really taken hold. It's it's a commercial thing. But we've had, you know, the Industrial Revolution made it so that toys could be mass marketed. And yeah. and uh, and as I said before, the, the, the music industry, you know, publishers and, 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 and the manufacturing of 78s, like it's become affordable. Everybody's got a record player. So, you know. And we're going to have this song that just hits people right in their emotional guts. Yes. And we're going to sell a lot of records. Like yeah. that thing has happened, that uh, integration of, of uh, yeah, culture with, with commercialization. Let's want to go back and talk about Christmas and how it got started. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Let's do that. Okay. First of all, the pagans. 
<laughs> we're jumping around. As soon as the harvest thing had happened and the days were getting short and yeah. it was solstice, it was, you know, very short days and the darkness was coming. And we would, you know, slaughter all the animals at the farm and, and, uh, and we'd have fresh meat. So it was a good time to have a feast. Yeah. So feasts happened right around when we were starting to, you know, put the meat up for, for the winter. And um, that would be in, in December-ish, you know, right around the solstice. Along come the Christians and they go, well, geez, these, these parties are happening. We don't want to be left out. <laughs> you know, we want, we want to have our own party too, but, you know, it's the, the birth of a baby. And they go, well... Why would there have been shepherds tending their flocks in the middle of winter? I, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's, you know, I don't think Jesus was born December 25th. And in truth, you know, the whole thing about the birth of Jesus didn't really get solidified till about the fourth century. It was Pope Julius I mm. who said, all right, I decree that December 25 is going to be our day. They were just stealing it from the pagans. Really? Yeah. There was already all kinds of celebrations that occurred in and around there. Yeah, that's how the Christians started it. So, and then, of course, in the early stages, very, very uh, somber, heavy-duty spiritual thing: the birth of a baby, the birth of hope, yeah, faith. All of these things were really strongly in- intertwined into this. But slowly but surely, over time, you know, along comes uh, uh, Chris Kringle and and that that idea of presents or lumps of coal and all of that. <laughs> So slowly but surely, it gets to this point where now, once the Americans get a hold of it, oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're getting a lot of tinsel now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of, that. in a nutshell, that's kind of the story of Christmas. But it that? really didn't get cemented in our culture for guys like you and me yeah. until the 30s and the 40s and the war. The yeah. war came along, the, well, first the Depression, and that made it so that it was like, wow, you know, we need some hope here. Where is yes. it going to come from? Yeah. And Christmas kind of became commercialized from that. Yeah. And then the war came and it was like, okay, 42nd Street and Brill Building, they were going to hit that one right in the guts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a little bit disparaging for me that there was calculation there. Christmas is a warm, comfortable time. And I like that. But, you know, just going back to what you're saying about people saying, okay, so, you know, rubbing their hands together, thinking, let's make some money from this. <laughs> it's kind of a shame. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't, I, to me, it's just life. Yeah. You know, like it that, that it, you're never going to escape that. For me, the secret of life was always a question of balance. Yeah. So I think as a songwriter, especially as a musician, that becomes a kind of a real strong truism for me because, and I'll equate this to a baseball analogy. You know, the greatest hitter ever in baseball was Ty Cobb, and he hit 367. So he failed more than seven times out of 10, yeah. six times out of 10, you know. So, and he, that's the greatest. If you can hit 300, man, you get to be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And as a songwriter, when you write songs, well, eight or nine of them are going to end up in the wastebasket. And, yeah. you know, one of them is going to maybe have this love, it's going to catch this prosody that we talked about earlier, you know, that magic. And, the fact that it now will become commercial, well, that's not a bad thing. You know, like th- that's how it translates for the enjoyment of other people. Yeah. You know, the selling of a ticket for a concert, the selling of a, a record, the, you know, whatever. So there's always going to be that integration of those things. Yeah. It's, it's, we live in a, a capitalistic, you know, democracy. What's the, th- was it Winston Churchill? It said, it's not a very good system, but it's the best of them all. they all suck (laughs) you know capitalism is the one that works so the best and i i sort of you know come back to that but you are sort of preaching to the choir here you know to me music was always a much more spiritual thing than a commercial thing but you're also talking to a guy that played in a band (laughs) where he wore spandex pants and jumped around we had laser lights and flash pots and talking laser heads going hey ladies and gentlemen (laughs) so yeah, we were kind of Barnum and Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> With the gloves. Remember the gloves? Yeah, I had the glove on my crotch. Uh, yeah. That was before I was even in Triumph. I know. We, we yeah. talked about that last yes. time. It was yeah. hilarious. Yeah. You had yeah. two pairs of those, yeah. left hand, right hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want to have to throw stuff out. Economical. <laughs> Can I use it? Okay, where are we at here on my list? Oh, my God. We are at the Christmas song, I believe. Oh, boy. This is going to be a long one. Okay, so we're. I think the people should track down two versions of this. Yeah. The first one should be the Nat King Cole one, 1946. Yep. 
But the other one that I want people to listen to is Mel Torme singing it himself, because Mel Torme is the guy that wrote it. Yeah. You know, now he wasn't even write it alone. He had a, he had a songwriting partner, but yeah. So the the thing that I love about uh, the Nat King Cole one is like at the at the heart of Nat King Cole's thing, he had his trio, and he had Oscar Moore on guitar, and I love Oscar Moore's guitar playing. He's very sort of uh, post Charlie Christian. There's just that lovely jazz kind of thing to him. And at the end, he plays jingle bells. Now, this brings me to another leitmotif of my yak-yak with you, which is that what you want to do with Christmas recordings is you want to quote other Christmas songs in your Christmas song. So what you want to do is you're exploiting nostalgia, but you're doubling down now. It's like nostalgia for nostalgia. Okay. And if you get good at it, you can have nostalgia about nostalgia about nostalgia. <laughs> like you can triple down. So, you know, you get to the end of this, you know, new Christmas song and, and uh, Oscar plays this. Yes. Right. What a great lick, you know, with these parallel and these two stringer thingies, which by the way, this is all a precursor to your rock around the clock, Chuck yeah. Berry. These guys were already doing these little kind of dyads and triad-y kinds of. Oh, and there's that major seven, you know, it's like a feels good. Yeah. 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 So really cool. So I love that. And of course, Nat King Cole is an unbelievable singer, like yeah. just great. And when you think about the way these records got made, these guys sang these things like live off the floor, everybody's surrounding one microphone. That's, and so you listen to those vocals and you go, oh my God, like yeah. he, he sang that without punching in or fixing anything. No, the, you know, uh, auto tune on any of that stuff, yeah, you know, like yeah. just unbelievably talented guy. So uh, where what are we talking about here? So oh. do you want to tell that story about how the song was written? Yeah, I do. Yeah, but I just uh, th- this. I want to finish off with this thing about quoting things. Sure. Okay, so in my list, it's become an important thing. So, and we're going to get to some rock and roll songs where Hank Garland is the guitar player who's quoting other Christmas licks yeah. because Oscar Moore did it in this one in Chestnuts. You know, when you hear Winter Wonderland and you're listening to that arrangement, you're hearing little melodies that were in arrangements. From, you know, two, three, four, or five decades before, you know, they're, they're all making their way back. Mm -hmm. So when we get close to the end of my list and the yellow jackets are telling it on the mountain, they're also bringing back, it was a Negro spiritual from way back and, but they're modernizing it. And so there's this real lovely thing about Christmas music to me where it's like, like jazz music does this, where mm. you, you're playing something and then in the middle of your solo, you just quote a little bit of, you know, Coltrane or a little bit of this or, you know, and yeah. all the musicians on the bandstand kind of go, because <laughs> they get it. If it sails over the heads of the audience, yeah. who cares? It's a We're, little inside joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in Christmas music, it's a little more apparent because we all know the jingle bells or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So yeah. it's, it's kind of hip when it happens. Anyways, yeah, we got that one. And now we're, who, what was the other one that I wanted to do? There was. Uh, so Mel Torme. Oh, Mel Torme. And we're going to tell the story. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So shall I just read it? Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. going to read the story. This was written by a woman named Lydia Hutchinson. And, and uh, this was in Performing Songwriter, but you can find it on the internet. Mm-hmm. So this is such a great story about songwriting. So uh, Chestnuts was written in 1945 by Bob Wells. He was Torme's writing partner and Torme. And Torme was kind of music and Bob Wells was kind of lyrics. But, you know, they would volleyball it back and forth. Okay. It was a sweltering, hot July afternoon in 1945 when Mel Torme shows up for a writing session at the Toluca Lake house of his lyric partner, Bob Wells. I'm coming away from the story now and talking again. Toluca Lake, you know, sort of south uh, and, and inland from L.A. Hot. Hot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're on your way to Palm Springs, kind of hot. Okay, so Mel lets himself in. He calls out for Bob. No answer. He walks over to the piano, and there, resting on the music board, is a, part of, a pad of paper with four lines of a verse. It says, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Yuletide carols being sung by a choir, and folks dressed up like Eskimos. When Wells finally walks into the room dressed in tennis shorts and a t-shirt, Torme asks him about this little poem. And he goes, yeah, you know, it was so damn hot today. I thought I'd write something to cool myself off. He says, all I could think of was Christmas and cold weather. 
And so chestnuts roasting on an open fire is an image of memory from Wells' childhood in Boston, where there was vendors on the street corners at Christmas serving up paper cones full of roasted chestnuts. And Tommy goes, hmm, you know what? I think you might have something here. He sits down at the piano, flashes on a melody for the opening lines. Wells grabs his pad and pen, and they're off and running like a bobsled down a snowy hill. <laughs> Torme relates in his autobiography, quote, Improbable though it may sound, the Christmas song was completed about 45 minutes later. Wow. Excitedly, we called Carlos Gastel, who was the manager of Nat Cole and Peggy Lee, sped over into Hollywood, played it for him, then for the lyricist Johnny Burke, and then for Nat Cole, who fell in love with the tune. It took a full year for him to get into a studio to record it. That was like August of 46. Okay. But his record finally came out in the late fall of 46, and the rest could be called our financial pleasure. I bet. I <laughs> so, bet. So, you know, let's go back to your thing where you were saying, you know, it kind of bugs me that guys are rubbing their hands and, you know, thinking about the monetary thing of it. Yeah. But to me, that's kind of cool. Here's these guys in a house in Toluca oh, yeah. Lake, California, in the middle of summer in Trying their cool tennis off. shorts, writing this thing that's going to become like the the fabric of in the soundtrack of people's lives you yeah, know for truly. decades and decades and decades you know yeah. it may never ever fall out of favor i can't see it really yeah. right it's it's just such a cool thing so yeah. financial pleasure yeah they deserve it. After the fact, absolutely. Go ahead and try it. See if you can write a Christmas song in the <laughs> middle of summer that's going to become the, you know, part of the fabric of the of the culture. It's Yeah. It's it's hard to do. Yeah. And you got to be really good at writing for that to happen and Mel Torme, what a singer. If you folks listen to that and you tell me that that guy isn't one of the greatest singers that ever lived. Yeah. Like guys like Frank Sinatra would go, oh yeah, Mel. Like, And Mel Torme was a drummer. Oh. Mel Torme could sit down at a drum kit and play his ass off. Really? Didn't know yeah. that. And a lot of great musicians. There's a great story, Beatles story. Maybe, did I say this the last time we were talking? The A guy's interviewing the Beatles and he says to Lennon, you know, so what's it like playing with Ringo Starr, the greatest drummer in the world? Yeah. And Lennon goes, uh, try to get that adenoidal Liverpool, the greatest drummer in the world. He's not even the greatest drummer in the Beatles. Because <laughs> McCartney is a great drummer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> like great musician. Stevie Wonder is a great drummer. Yeah. I'm well, not one of those kind of musicians, yeah, but yeah. Mel Torme is one of those kind of musicians. Yeah. So- when you listen to him sing, his timing is just impeccable. His phrasing is just beautiful because he's a drummer. Yeah. He just feels it right down to the balls of his feet. Lennon had uh, some great, you know, when they did those press conferences, when they first came to America, they were hilarious. I don't know. They, and they were making the stuff up on the spot. Yeah. You know, somebody said, so John, is it true that both of your parents were in show business? And he said, well, me dad always said me mom was a great performer. <laughs> 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 right? Yeah, yeah. But just right off the top Isn't of his that head. Great, eh? it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. We need a rim shot after that. <laughs> That's right. No, they were good. They were clever. Boy, oh boy. But and Torme, very hip, you know. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, love that. Okay. All right. So we're at uh the Christmas song. We have six more songs to go. Yeah. So should we do one more? Yeah, and then take a little break. Yeah, let's do that. Have a sandwich? Yeah. Okay. And we'll All right, do, we'll so do we're a, gonna we'll do sleigh ride. Do a two part. Okay. Okay. Good one to end this. Sleigh Ride is a good one to end it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Tons of energy in this track. Yeah. Yeah. So Sleigh Ride. So this is like the end of side one, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy named Leroy Anderson that wrote this. Yeah. And what a character Leroy Anderson is. So this was 1950. Okay. His recording. Don't listen to the Arthur Fiedler Boston Pops one, which was the original hit from 1949, because okay. it's at a slower tempo, and it's got these jingle bells that go shooka, 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 all the way through it. Boring. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Leroy Anderson goes, no, this is what I heard in my head. I'm going to do it myself, 1950. Yeah. And it's got, like, unbelievable. It's got the jingle bells, but it's got wood blocks for the horses. Clip-clop, oh, clip-clop, yeah, clip-clop. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got whip cracks from snapping the whip at the horses on the sleigh oh, ride. Wow. And then right at the end, there's this great lick that a trumpeter plays, which is like a horse whinny kind of, 
Yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah, so it's like sound effects city. It's so animated. It's yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's really good. Yeah. So that's what people want to listen to. That's Sleigh Ride. So Leroy Anderson, let me tell you a little bit about him. Yeah, sure. He was a guy, his parents were Swedish. Okay. And so he grew up, you know, knew the language, went to Harvard, okay. graduated a magna cum laude. So this guy was smart. Uh, and music, like studied there, studied orchestration, studied counterpoint, you know, was versed in all aspects of music composition. Uh, also then thought, well, you know, I'm going to pick up some languages. So Swedish, Finnish, like all of the uh, uh, German. Okay. Okay. So along comes the war and, hey, this guy, this guy could be valuable. Yeah. So he ends up in counterintelligence and gets put over in Europe and he's doing stuff like who knows what wow. because – no, you know, you, you can't really talk about it. Yeah. But I'm sure he was doing things like translating German things that the underground had picked up and, you know, putting out false things and seven languages the guy could. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but he comes back and he's a musician. Okay. So he's writing a little bit, but it's not a full-time job because the government says, would you like to come and work in the Pentagon? So. <laughs> So he's got a Pentagon gig, but he's writing on the side for the Boston Pops Orchestra, and he writes this thing, right. and it becomes a big like radio hit. Wow! So now he's got this whole thing going where he's all <laughs> he's like working for the government, doing undercover, you know, Lord knows what. This is Man of all seasons. Yeah, and but he's and then he wrote like the theme song for To Tell the Truth. Oh, yeah, on TV, and he liked little short things. He didn't write big long symphonies. He just liked to write sort of little compositions and yeah. because he had this very it's almost like cartoon music okay. but it's so hip when you listen to sleigh ride it has all these like there's these counter melodies yeah like this counterpoint that happens inside the wow yeah it's just it's 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 really great talk about you know modulations and key changes and like so the thing's roaring along and then stops like it's now it's in a whole other key and away we go again you know like crazy yeah, uh, was I going to play a little bit of this? Yeah, please do. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to think about. So your original key is G. So you've got this. Uh, um, sleigh bells jingling, ring ding, tingling too. Yeah. Dun da da da. And so this is a pretty standard kind of a progression. Yeah, you know, this is like. Dum dum dum, da da da. But you know, he's using it like. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. You know, like all that stuff's happening. Yeah. So um, you get to the second and it goes like. Yeah. So it's gone from the key of G. It's going to end up in the key of B. Okay. So it's going up the major third. Okay. Yeah. And then it's going to go. So now we've gone down a key. Yeah. Because we're trying to find our way back to the home key. Now we're back to the thing, right? Wow. So the little journey goes from, from here to... And then... So there's this thing of two fives. Okay. And Christmas music is full of two fives. And when you're studying jazz music, you learn to play over two fives. Okay. And what I'm referring to is a number system of taking the chords of a uh, that are based on the degrees of a major scale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the, that's what a two five is. So in the key of G, yeah. the two chords on A minor, A minor seven, okay. the five chord is a D. Okay. So you get these... And it, it kind of naturally brings you back. So when I play this 2-5, your ear goes, oh, that's key of G. Like, you don't know it, but you're hearing this. You're hearing that resolution. So wow. if I go... It sounds like jazz, but I'm just going 2-5. There's the one of it, 2-5. And you don't even need the one. So... 
like for example chestnuts mm-hmm. chestnuts roasting on an open fire uh, Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows It's two fives It's all this like spider web of these Da-da-dum-da-dee-dum Oh yeah Ba-bee-boo-bee-boo-bee-na Chestnuts roasting on an open fire So Wow. All of these Christmas songs do it, but Sleigh Bell is pretty hip that it's got, you know, this great bridge. Now, wow. there's a whole other section. There's a birthday party at the home of Farmer Gray. It's been the perfect ending of a perfect day. We'll be singing the songs we love to sing. Da, 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 dee, da, da. Isn't that hip? Yeah. That's just so great. At the fireplace, no, 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 it's pop, mm, pop, pop, pop. The guy thinks like a cartoon. <laughs> dunk, dunk, dunk. Now, he, he didn't write the lyric. The lyric got written later by yeah. another guy whose name I don't have in front of me. I mean, imagine how clever that is, that yeah. the, the guy wrote this thing and it goes, da, 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 rah, pop, pop. And a guy writes a thing, oh, the popcorn's going to pop, 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 pop. Like, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. It's just so great. And the, the lyric has, like, uh, mention of Courier and Ives, you know, all the old catalogs that were coming oh. back in the day. Okay. So, yeah. So here's here's the additional thing that the, the, the music got written in 1946. Okay. But the lyricist w- was a guy named Mitch, Mitchell Parrish. Okay. He didn't write the lyric until 1950. Oh. So it didn't become a song that people could actually sing till. It was just an instrumental in in its first, you know, four or five years of life. Pretty good, eh? Very. Yeah. Very interesting. So anyhow, that'll get us up to the, for part two, we're going to go to the rock and roll era. That's right. So Perfect, actually. Now it's time for everybody to go and have a bathroom break. That's right. Make yourself another cup of coffee, something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So this uh, concludes part one of our Christmas episode with Rick Emmett. Until next time, folks. Till next week. Not for us, though. Uh, (laughs) Take good care. We'll talk to you next week. Brent Jensen is a best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 